0: Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast, and in this episode, I am very, very excited to bring you this guest, and I'm also very excited because this is the first episode in quite some time where I'm actually talking to a guest. Like I talked about in the last episode, we haven't published any sort of content since uh, May 22nd, so this is the first one out there where we will actually be talking to a guest, and this is none other than Dr. Robert David Grimes, who holds a PhD from Dublin City University, in Ireland, um, doing work on ultraviolet radiation physics, followed by a postdoctoral fellowship in medical physics and oncology. However, he isn't doing as much work within that realm right now, and instead, he has become a science communicator and an advocate for science. He is frequently included as a panelist on various radio and television stations, including BBC World News, PBS NewsHour. The Guardian, New York Times, pretty much everywhere that you can think of, he has been there as a panelist, as some sort of uh, commentator on that, so he is very in demand, and he is also the author of Good Thinking, Why Flawed Flawed Logic Puts Us All at Risk and How Critical Thinking Can Save the World, which I personally read and was a phenomenal book, so let's get into this episode. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Welcome to the Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live and now here's your host Raghav Sharma Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast, and uh, sorry, guys, for the kind of disruption. I know it's been a little bit since you've heard some of these episodes, but today I'm very excited to bring you this episode. You heard a little bit about this guest, uh, Dr. Grimes, and kind of the introduction for this, but he is, uh, it's an honor to have him on. He's frequently a panelist on much bigger TV productions like BBC Radio, uh, BBC TV, um, just The Guardian, all those different kinds of things. So it's an honor to have him here. So let's get into this. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Definitely. So the first thing is, you are you did your training and your PhD and postdoctoral research all kind of in cancer research, um, kind of radiation, medical physics, that kind of stuff. How'd you go from that to becoming a bright, uh, broad science communicator?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think um, I started off in physics years ago, and but very quickly after that, I kind of segued towards medicine. I don't know quite how that happened. Apart from the fact that the questions that started to interest me more were about how do we understand um, health around us, how do we improve things? Cancer was the the big thing I looked at and said, well that's that's something interesting. But from that I kind of got interested in public health and, and ideas like that. But underpinning all of this became what actually is science? What is the methodology we use to understand that world around us to 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 have a better, a grasp on what we're actually going to do and as i delved into it i found that sometimes that's not even well understood inside the scientific community and that leads to things like poor research papers coming out there and, and polluting the literature or, or people maybe spending their entire careers chasing rabbits down rabbit holes that that go nowhere so the whole idea of where the uh the the the, the kind of epistemic understanding of how we do science really interested me too and. I think i might have been okay at communicating that to people so i started writing kind of by accident i will say initially uh, and then they kept asking me to do it again so here i am 10 years later still writing um and hopefully helping people understand science a little bit better definitely if
0: uh, you guys out there are not familiar with dr Grimes' work um, one thing that you can tell from his work is that he's incredibly passionate about it otherwise i don't think there's any reason anyone would do this he gets a significant amount of hate for this, actually, because he is very outspoken about the various topics that he speaks about, um, about just like various medical myths, all of these different things. So, where does this passion come from? Because a lot of people, like myself, kind of realize the same thing: we're like, let's try to clean this up,
1: all that kind. But you endure a lot for this, which speaks to your passion. Yeah, it might be because I'm more stupid than your average listener. That, that's entirely a possibility. But I think one of the things I learned when I was very young was sometimes and I, I think I learned this um I, I grew up in the Middle East um and it was a weird environment to grow up in because we were very much in a i, I suppose little colonies of expatriates and it was we we were kind of very community. I didn't really understand how um aggressively anti evidence people could be until until I moved back home. And I I had come from a very kind of matter of fact. My father's an engineer, my mother's a nurse. Facts were facts and opinions were opinions. And I started realizing that those boundaries get blurred in public discussion, or people start off with a belief and then they try to cherry pick the evidence to fit it. So I learned a lot of times the hard way that's what people were doing. But instead of stopping what I was doing, I, I thought maybe it would be better for society. I, I could contribute more if I was willing to show people how maybe we should do it. I'm not saying that I'm always right by any means, But saying, look, this is the methodology by which we arrive at a more reliable understanding of evidence. Because of course, opinions are opinions and that's fine. But I often see people conflating their opinions with evidence or their preconceived notions. And, and, And I think it's really important to separate that out. So I think that's how we started and went down that way. And I'm not sure if it's passion or stubbornness. It's probably a little bit of both. But I would like to live in a world where we make better decisions as a collective, because no matter what way you cut it, right? No matter what way you wish to slice the information, um, the actions of our neighbors affect us and our our actions affect other people. The pandemic was a brilliant example of that. You had the whole thing of, you know, should people wear masks, should we get vaccinated? And these, some people try to make these decisions in isolation about me, 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 where actually these are often public health questions, which is, you know, I mean, I, I'm, you're probably younger than me, I'm 37, I wasn't particularly high risk, but I was very, very eager to get vaccinated for the sole fact that I don't want to be even on a secondary level responsible for inadvertently killing someone else by something that wouldn't bother me. And even having those discussions, and I was doing a lot of TV work during the pandemic about that, that obviously wasn't a way that everyone thought, mm-hmm. uh, or and that's okay, but I, I it was my job I felt to try and get them to see it from a different point of view. It's not necessarily about you. It's sometimes about how the fact that we all are in a society. And that means we should be making the best possible decisions, whether it's on climate change or whether it's on public health or preventative medicine. And that's really what drives me a little bit. I'm like, I don't mind getting a bit of abuse for that. If I can catch some people (laughs) on board and make some people go, hey, that's actually a really good point. The loudest voices will always be the emptiest vessels. I mean, as the old adage tells us, but I don't mind taking a bit of flack from from people like that if I'm getting across to other people who otherwise wouldn't get the message.
0: Well, I think that's absolutely very noble of you to kind of even accept that some criticism will come your way and kind of put yourself in the limelight. A lot of people, once they get into that position, are like, oh, no, this is a little bit too far for me. I'm going to step away. It's not worth it. Um, and speaking of good decisions, and you brought up preventive medicine, uh, I think a lot of preventive medicine has to do with making those good decisions. But I'm going to let that definition kind of come up to you. So as this kind of the opening question for this podcast what does preventive medicine mean to you
1: we see that this is a great example of like of, of where you get into things because actually what I, I often do even with my students is when we're having discussions we start off with well, what are we talking about because you know oftentimes you're talking at cross purposes about related concepts for me preventative medicine is any measure that you would undertake and i look at it kind of a public health kind of way any measure you want to reduce your risk burden of onto yourself or to other people in the future it is the analogy i would use is my brother you said this when he goes out for a few drinks and night out. we're all irish so of course we love a few drinks That his version of preventative medicine and uh, this is this is a bit facetious but he'll feel like a pint glass full of water beside the bed and leave some painkillers out and a note to himself to drink the full pint of water and take the painkillers before the next morning that's i mean that's a jokey version of it but obviously any measure we do whether it's to um you know Join a gym and manage, make sure we don't go to beast or things like that. There's, there's a lot of different ways it can be managed, but definitions will vary. And so oftentimes I'm, I'm always aware of saying what my definition is because it will depend on whom to whom I speak. So you're probably going to give me yours, which is probably maybe quite different. So, that's... well, I'm not
0: going to give you mine because you are the star of this episode and people have heard me talk for 50 plus episodes. So they don't want to hear that anymore. But uh, kind of why I wanted to talk to you about this is because a lot of preventive medicine, people make these decisions. Some of them are evidence-based, some of them are not. And what we want people to do is hopefully make decisions that are actually shown to be beneficial for them instead of to be facetiously, once again, to putting that painkiller in the water. It's probably better to not drink so much instead that you are constantly getting hung over to a better decision. Um, no, no, no shame or no, shame no, or no, anything no, not, there. Not at
1: all. But there is an interesting conversation there in Damage Limitation. For example, we know, and I do a lot of work in the HPV vaccine and and sexual health, it's one of the reasons, for example, that abstinence-only programs never work for this kind of stuff, because people are still going to do the the things that they want to do. What you need to do is reduce the risk, because sometimes it's a case of not saying, you're right, we should drink less. In fact, ideally, alcohol is a class one carcinogen, we should never drink. But I damn well know that most of my friends Everyone's probably going will. To. So if they do, I'd like to damage limitations. There's a whole different class. But you are correct, 100% correct. But I, I'm very much um, a cynical realist these days rather than an
0: idealist. And this is, this is one of the things actually why I do want to talk to you because we know these things to be true. And some things are like scientific methods, some things are not. But we have to kind of gauge our risk level of what we want to do. We'll get into that a little bit later. But first, let's talk about the history of the scientific method. Um, kind of how it came to be because at some point following quote-unquote science people are following kind of these four humors of the body they like yellow bile black bile people were draining each other with leeches all in the name of science so how do we go from something like that to where we are today
1: surprisingly slowly i think is the answer there so the four humor theory was still going strong in the late 1800s in some sectors of medicine weirdly enough medicine itself and this is my my, my very folk history of it But medicine itself was kind of slow to the table of a scientific revolution. So you can broadly separate histories and categories. And again, this varies through cultures. I mean, we always, a lot of us look through history from a very Western, you know, white kind of lens. And I'm uh, Western and white, therefore guilty of that as well. And of course, there was Islamic cultural revolutions and all sorts of different ones going on. But broadly speaking, when you read the kind of history of this, the Enlightenment era, 1700s onwards, is when people started abandoning and at least in 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 European countries started abandoning say superstition more and looking at these kind of deductive methods but science didn't just emerge whole cloth it emerged very slowly with individual good ideas I mean we've always had smart people and, and good thinking but you have to have the right environments this to emerge so it's kind of start I would say at the tail end of the 1600s early into the 1700s where you had the great physicists people like Ed, and the great Physical scientists doing experiments to test their ideas to challenge notions that had been accepted wisdom for many years for example one of the things i love is um aristotle who's often considered one of the fathers of of greek philosophy he thought for years that flies had four legs and it wasn't until the 1700s that someone decided to count like these are little things when this started becoming stuff we take for granted now but it took a long time when people had the free time to do this as well i mean again Science started being done by very rich men for the most part because they were generally the ones at the time. You had engineers who were doing a lot of innovative stuff over the years, but that was for practical purpose. Science for the sake of knowledge, you had to have, uh, comfortable societies where people had you know the the wherewithal to do this. Medicine was a bit slower on because in medicine, if you think about it, people have to make, you know, life or death decisions. So a lot of times, medicine can be force of to personality too. I mean, if you have one doctor who goes, "I think we do it this way." That's decisive. You don't want someone who sits there for two weeks going, oh, think about that, you know? Sometimes you do, but generally you don't. So medicine's a little bit late to the table. But the scientific method started creeping into medicine around the 1800s. And there was a bit of a a face-off, I suppose, between the emerging scientific contingent, who very much were adopting these enlightenment ideas to make medical treatment better, and wanted to do things like, testing and, and now the, the, the seeds of, of, of testing had been sown before People had done for example with a scur- a scurvy and vitamin C that was one of the first classic uh, trials where they said we'll give different people different uh, we'll, we'll assign them to different treatments and see who doesn't get scurvy when they're crossing the sea um, so you had all these prototypes that eventually have become staples of, of medical science but they were all emerging at this time and we read the history it looks like it's a nice linear progression. It, it was nothing like that. One of my favorite examples of this was Semmelweis. And if you read most textbooks, they will tell you Semmelweis was an an Austro-Hungarian physicist, or sorry, uh, physician. And he's often credited with discovering that hand washing uh, reduces uh, mortality. And he discovered this in Vienna in, in the 1840s, where he started running experiments in the hospital he was working in. In one of the buildings, women died in childbirth to a huge degree. And in the other building, they seemed to be much better. And he instituted a, like a, a lime hand wash and started making people people do this. And very quickly, the mortality rate fell, until the two hospitals were actually very very even. And we we now know with modern science the reason it was so much higher is that during their spare time, surgeons in one of the hospital buildings, the one with the high death rate, were practicing their surgical acumen on corpses out the back, and then coming from there. And, and, you know, not washing their hands and going straight in. And then infection was a big, huge risk factor. Pregnant women are, you know, without, in the pre-antibiotic era, remember this as well, before we had anything for this, were very susceptible to infection because they're open, they're bleeding. You don't want to put corpse juice anywhere uh, there at all. And now that story, and what happened, of course, to Samuel is a lot of his peers condemned him. He eventually started writing these angry letters calling um, his fellow physicians murderers and he was put into a um, you know an institute died in a straitjacket ironically from infection similar to the women that he'd been treating and in the history of that it's often considered a clash between the older professors who had this four humor theory of medicine who were outraged at this upstart calling them unclean that's a nice neat history it's wrong it's partially right he was correct he did this kind of experiment but the reason it's wrong is that again we put narrative on things and it's all, much messier firstly he was not the first person to show that hand washing was good for mortality and this is something the emerging scientific younger scientists were really or medical scientists were really keen mm-hmm. to show he also insisted that all disease must be caused by what he called um um cadaveric ca- ca- cadaver particles he basically had the death particles cause all disease and even the emerging scientific contingent were like that's Demonstrably not true true we have examples of airborne infection we have examples they were able to show all this kind of stuff and he um he started attacking them as well so here's the thing he made a very correct observation and he did good he had good data to back it up but he also rejected a rake of evidence that would have made that uh, And and he also had a very his personal manner wasn't great so even when he was trying to communicate his message it was messy now there was older professors who were in the four humors thing still even at that time in the 1840s and they would have looked down at him but the story's never that neat and the pattern to and we, we can think about it like you there's lots of fantastic scientists and medical scientists who've had one great idea and a lot of terrible ones um and sometimes they don't see the difference from them i mean i think we we discussed before you and i linus pauling or someone like that you can have people that The method matters. You need to get, it's not just who does the right thing. You have to do the right thing for the right reason. It is better to be wrong for the right reason than to be right for the wrong reason. Because long-term, if you get the reasoning correct, you'll get the right solution more often than not.
0: Definitely, and a lot to follow up on there. Uh, I think I'm just going to jump to this one part where you mentioned that uh, Semmelweis was kind of ahead of his times, quote unquote, to some extent, where he was thinking about yeah, washing Absolutely, to some extent. And then I want to parallel that to today, where you have some people who think they are ahead of their times for having these kind of medical breakthroughs of like, uh, if you just do this one thing, suddenly you'll get rid of all disease. And unfortunately, I think this is very common in the preventive medicine space because uh, this sells. Um, They're like, you can prevent all diseases. Everyone's very valuable about their health. They're like, okay, if I do this one thing, I can do it. So, whether it comes down to various diets, like the carnivore diet that seems to be very popular today um, by one particular individual or many other things, Uh, there's people who are ahead of their times that um, think that the scientific community is just out to get them because science hasn't caught up to me yet. What do you say to that?
1: Generally, that's not really the case at all. Um, And there's a few reasons. Science has become far more formalized an enterprise these days. It's it's a, it's quite a bit more inclusive than it used. To. It's still not perfect. But it's it's not just a bunch of old rich white men sitting around anymore you know and I mean in, in their learned societies. If you can proffer evidence for your suggestion, and you will be taken seriously. And in fact, there is a weird bias in science these days. I write a bit about this as well. But if you can give um, a jarring, unexpected, incredible result, it is far more likely that will get published and into the scientific discussion and literature than if you if you didn't so when people say they have a miracle or a brilliant method you're kind of go, well yeah then you should be able to offer evidence of that and everyone should be giving you the nobel prizes and shaking your head but i think what you kind of hit on there is that things like these carnivore diets or whatever else they might have one inkling of a good idea someone might read oh i need a lot of b12 in my diet or something and i go i'm gonna be but they're reductive. They're fundamentally reductive. And the thing is, biochemical systems, which humans are, 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 like that, that's reductive itself. But there's a lot of different processes going on. I like to give, because I, I talk about radiotherapy a lot, and I like to say to my students, is radiation good or bad for you? And they will go, well, it's bad for you. You don't want to get like radon. You don't want to get, and I'm like, okay, what if you're getting cancer treatment? What if you're getting, you know, um, you know, and they're like, oh, yeah, then it's good. I said, so would you not accept that in different situations to different dosages, things are matter more or less? And of course, something like as complicated as a human being or any creature, there are multiple interconnected systems interacting. So I am generally suspicious as hell of anyone who gives a simple answer to a complex question, because usually the reason it's complicated is it's got multiple moving factors that interfere. Um, there's an idea, and we all do this. It's, it's I think it's kind of like the, the era error of linearity. We assume if a little of something is good, then more of it is better. This is why you have people taking high dose mega vitamin regimes that do nothing for them because they know that they need a, a few, you know, they need vitamins in their diet, and they suddenly go, "Wow, if I just take more, I'll be healthier." Uh, not necessarily. And again, everything has a toxicity level. I mean, you don't. But people do that, and it's reductive, and it's it's reassuring. Um, and the answer is generally stuff is complicated and you have to untangle a lot of factors and do a risk benefit analysis of pretty much everything uh, that's not what people want to hear that's not going to sell you your dietary cookbooks. I mean take I'll give one more example um, you go and see fad diets and yet we have decades of data from dietitians and long-term studies that basically say the same thing in different ways uh, you need a very balanced diet. Uh, to cover all your micronutrient bases, whatever way you get that, it's probably fine. That's boring. No one's going to sell a, a best-selling diet book or a, a sexy fad diet with that boring old advice that we have lots of evidence for. Someone who says no, 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 it's all this, it's all carbs, or it's all you know protein, or it's all whatever else. That's easy, and it's 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 kind of yeah, I won't say it's new, but it's it's a sexy simplistic message. I think we need to get very very careful about anyone who gives a simple answer to a complex question to go, you're probably reducing this to a point where it's no longer the original question and therefore I'm suspicious of it. Sexy
0: definitely sells.
1: And some unfortunately, some
0: of those people who do have those sexy answers still have some level of evidence that they can sometimes quote as, whether they're cherry picking studies or saying like, oh yeah, you get a lot of vitamin B12, which is great, so you should be doing this diet. It's still quote unquote, evidence and people who are of uh, thinking of evidence would be like, oh, yeah, there's some sort of scientific backing behind this. Absolutely. And then you kind of fall into a trap, but it doesn't necessarily follow the scientific method through and through, as you were talking about. So as kind of a general populist level, um, obviously it's different for researchers who are actually conducting research, but as a general populist level or those who are in applied
1: sciences, what does it mean to follow the scientific method? It's a really difficult. And I was thinking of this a lot during the pandemic. Um, because I was asked this by a lot of different journalists. Or, and, and it actually, and this, I'd be the first person to that science should be open for everyone. And, and it is in one respect. In, in other respects, it's not. But one of the problems is it's really difficult, even for trained professionals, to assess research. Because one of the things you have to do if you're making a decision on whether something is, is net beneficial or, or for whatever circumstance, and I should put for whatever circumstance, because depends what you want to achieve from something, um, you have to weigh up the totality of the evidence base. I can find you individual studies that will tell you anything you want, right? That's no good. What I need to give you is what... I need to look at every study as a data point, on a, if you imagine a very simple 2D graph, and some of them will be outliers and scattered and maybe weak or crappy. I need to put all of the studies on that and see what the trend points towards, particularly with medical studies, because depending where you do your study, or maybe you have too small a group, or maybe... You know, maybe you were doing a study of how much pork people eat, but you accidentally did it in a Jewish neighborhood. Like, you're going to skew (laughs) your data. So this is why individual studies on their own aren't necessarily informative. And I like to tell people that not all studies are created equal. If you have a massive, well-controlled study of thousands of people, um, that's going to be stronger than 12 people that you met in a pub without randomization. And that's hard to convey to people, right? So when you want to follow the evidence, what's really important here is consensus and expert consensus so for example i always say like during the pandemic we had the rise of individual scientists who come out and tell you whatever you wanted to hear were you pro-lockdown great you'll find a scientist that will say that's the best thing we should be doing that were you absolutely against lockdowns you'll find another great scientist for whatever now telling you the exact opposite and the problem was people cherry pick depending on what their pre-existing notions were where i found organizations like say the cdc or the who or individual public health bodies who had to weigh up evidence and come out with their more measured approaches their advice was usually really good because they had to wherever it's individual scientists have individual biases and particularly if you see them in newspapers one of the things i found during the pandemic is that i actually and it's, it's still going on by the way but like to a lesser less acute extent than it was um I found that I was actually, I, I joked with this, I was on TV less because I'd get journalists going, tell us something, when's the pandemic going to end? Or what should we do about it? And I would very carefully explain that there's a lot of conflicting evidence that you'd need to talk to an epidemiologist and a public health specialist, and then mm-hmm. they're going to just, and I'd say, look, the answer is they're, they're going to not be able to give you a single answer. And you'd often have a producer and oh, we want you to come on and just tell us it's going to be over in two months and or or it's not going to be over for a year. And I'm like, I don't think anyone can do that. And then I'd turn on the TV later on. I'd find they'd found some scientist that would do exactly that for them. And then that scientist was doing the rounds for months and months and months. So the problem is, I don't think that particular scientist was doing good science or communicating science well, but that's why individual scientists, including myself, are not authoritative sources on their own. Scientists are only doing science for as long as they are objectively quoting the evidence base in context. Once they go off piste, they're no longer doing science
0: we want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is not intended for medical advice and is for educational and informational purposes only we also want to remind you of our instagram page at prevent pod where we share various content related to each episode that you can share with your friends if you enjoy our episode (laughs) and lastly don't forget to sign up for our mailing list so you know right away when an episode goes up at www.thepreventedmedicinepodcast.com and with that let's get back into this episode All right. So you spoke a little bit about kind of uh, even prolific scientists or great scientists who might have their own individual beliefs that somehow come to the point of, uh, in the context of COVID, anti-lockdown. We should all be like going around each other, being as close to each other as possible, uh, increasing our immune systems, all those kinds of things, right? So... An example of that that you've already spoken about is kind of uh, Dr. Linus Pauling, who's famous for so many different things, great contributions to science, but also you talk about in your book, which everyone should go read, by the way, um, talked about in the intro, Um, he fell into mega dosing of vitamins and uh, it was It was kind of known or not known, but we know now that it doesn't really do anything, but he kind of kept with this dogma and kind of fell off of the scientific community because of this. However, there's still a lot of people that subscribe to this just because of this notion that a prolific scientist came up with
1: this, so it must keep going. How do these dogmas begin? That's, that's, yeah, that's, it's so true. And just to put it in context, he didn't just like get into it. He became the leading evangelist. So he decided that he wanted to um, live a bit longer. And someone came up to him at a lecture and said, you should try a mega dose of vitamin C. And this is like 1968. Um, by two years later, he'd written a book saying, "This will if you take this, you'll basically live forever. He didn't just write one book. He wrote other books saying that it would cure cancer. It could cure snake bite. And in the 80s, he told people it could cure AIDS. There wasn't... Uh, a modicum of evidence for his position, even though this guy had a Nobel prize in chemistry and a Nobel peace prize mm-hmm. on his own, by the way, the, the only person in history to have two unshared Nobel prizes, obviously a brilliant man, but so blinded by his brilliance that he didn't stop to think about evidence. He found something he wanted to be true. And this is a very good lesson in the hubris of science, right? If a scientist is not reflecting the evidence base, If they are not accurately following the scientific method it doesn't matter how much vaunted and how brilliant they might be they're no longer doing science and what we all tend to do as a shortcut as a heuristic as a little rule of thumb is we look at someone's qualification and we use that as a proxy for judging their words oftentimes that's true if you go to your doctor and say hey i got a headache or whatever they're probably going to give you good advice most of the time you're occasionally going to get some lunatic who tells you you should like you know drill a hole in your skull? Okay, that's probably an extreme example. Trepaning probably isn't happening very often in modern medical practice, but you will if you go to France. I used to spend a lot of time in France, um, and I'd have doctors try to give me homeopathic stuff when I was, in the, and I was like, this this doesn't work. This is, and they're like, oh, it might work, and I'm like, it doesn't work. Please stop offering me this junk. Uh, but I meet people who go, well, my doctor gave me this, so it must work. So we use, and I mean. When I talked, to, I, I was building something in my garden a while ago and I had an engineer down. One of my, my father is an engineer and one of his friends, and he was doing the, the, the planning. And I just had to, I laughed and thought to myself, I'm assuming he knows what he's doing. It's probably a fair assumption, but if, if he's wrong, the whole structure's going to fall down. Mm. Um, and, and this is why people have indemnity and insurance and things like that. But when it comes to just getting our advice, we do look at someone's authority. The reason vitamin C megadosing became such a huge thing I remember JAMA wrote an article about this in 1971 saying, this is going to be a thing this is, this is because he's saying it, even though it's wrong, it's going to be really big. They had no idea how big it was going to be. Cause even now, 50 years later, people still mega dose on vitamin C, even though it does literally nothing apart from maybe give you diarrhea. Um, so, you know, if you're looking for increased fatality and you don't mind it being in your bowels, you go straight ahead with that. Um, but that's the point. And it's a really hard lesson because, you know, and we see, I, I think the pandemic has just been such a reminder of that. Just because someone is scientifically brilliant or has done good work or has succeeded in their career, whether in medicine or science, it doesn't mean that they are an, an a perfect font of knowledge. It doesn't even mean they are always up to date in the evidence. They may know an awful lot about one area and wrongly think they can extrapolate that to another area. And that is something to be very wary of. The only thing that matters is evidence and consensus of totality on evidence which is really hard for people to assess i know there's no easy answer for it but it is an important thing to keep in the back of our minds definitely when it comes to misinformation i think there's different levels of like scale
0: obviously mega dosing vitamins is only harmful maybe to someone's toilet from the diarrhea Um, but when it comes to different levels let's say you have the anti-vax movement which can cause a significant amount of harm to ...communities, to states, even to countries if you have like reemergence of various diseases. And it seems that this misinformation always seems to condense into a very small, very vocal minority who end up changing public discourse in some unfortunately dramatic way at some points where it can change like the vaccine rates and cause reemergence of disease. Why does this always end up being the case? Is this a case of like science gone into religion or like misinformation become religion? Or how does this always end up being the case?
1: Yeah, that's a really excellent question. And I'm going to try and and unpick it a bit. I wrote a bit for Scientific American about this recently, and I've been thinking about it a lot. So a a lot of the things when I was writing the book, I suddenly realized that I had to understand a lot more about psychology. So I went and talked to really brilliant psychologists about why do people do this? So, I can't, and there's different reasons people do different things, but a general thing that I saw an awful lot, and this is for all conspiracy theorists, but the anti vaccine movement is one I've studied for years, and they're a subset of conspiracy theorists. Because to believe that vaccines are causing us harm and the whole medical establishment are covering up those harms, you do have to believe intrinsically there's a conspiracy, even though, as I've in my own research, I've shown that's really, really unlikely to be the case. So why do people believe that? And why do you suddenly have, say, the, as you point out, a very small minority of doctors and scientists adding their voice to this and and fueling that fire? Um, And I've dealt with several of them over the years, obnoxious people like Andrew Wakefield in my time. But I'll tell you one of the things, reasons for that. One of the big things that draws people to conspiracy theories, so sometimes it's epistemic uncertainty, and this is more people who fall victim to conspiracy theories. Uh, the people that say, are looking for answers and are scared. And then someone authoritative comes out and says, this is, this is, you know, ignore this or do this, or this is dangerous, right? But the question I ask is different types of conspiracy theorists. There's the people that fall for them. Like that that hypothetical person that's looking for answers could fall for them. Um, but what you also see is the kind of people that spread them. And the people that spread them that we're talking about now are the doctors and scientists who came, come out there despite all their training, despite all their access to evidence and education that a lot of people never got, that they talk absolute nonsense. Why do they do that? And a major motivating factor of conspiracy theorists in general, but particularly this kind of evangelist type, is narcissism. There is something, human about getting attention for being contrarian about, and in the, in the anti-vaccine movement, if you go out there and you're a doctor who denounces Uh, vaccination you will get a cult following you will get people telling you you are great you will get people saying you know i'm going to listen to him all the time and pay him money i mean there are certain anti-vaccine doctors that make over a million a year on these anti-vaccine speaking circuits but i don't think it's the money that's the main motivation it might be for some of them the charlatans everywhere i think it's the cultish kind of narcissistic drive and unfortunately even though those people are such a minority as you've pointed out already they're so loud. And they have doctor, they have MD or PhD in their title, and people go, and I totally understand why people go, oh, well, they must be valid. And that's why we're having discussions now. I started a discussion about six years ago, and people said, this is nuts, that should doctors who spread health disinformation or scientists that spread health disinformation, should they be censored by their professional bodies or like taken off registers? I would probably lean towards yes. If they do it repeatedly after correction, yes because they have that weight that scares people but that's i know that's obviously a controversial (laughs) the more i think about it the more i am i'd be totally fine with even my own scientists um being censored if they continue to spread disinformation because their status in society and the respect they're afforded can kill other people and it's it's a hard one to weigh up exactly the the free speech with the with the control of that speech. But I think that the very important point is everyone has freedom of speech, but no one has freedom from the consequences of their speech. If I go and say something that causes you harm, I'm still liable for the harm I've caused you. I still have the right to say it, but I have to suck up and, you know, if I lose my job for saying something racist or something, I hope that never happens. But if I do that, you can't go, well, it's free speech. Well, yeah, it was free speech, but you said something terrible and deplorable, and that's the consequence that goes with that speech.
0: Definitely. Um, for those people that unfortunately fall victim to these kinds of claims, this kind of misinformation and end up falling into the dogma, the evangelism of it. Um, when they get seen by medicine, sometimes they're kind of written off or like, oh, ne- nothing's ever going to happen. For example, uh, in the emergency room, we had a patient came in who was in pain. I'm like, okay, uh, she wasn't in that much pain. So we're not offering her nar- narcotics or anything. but Like, we'll give you some Tylenol. And she said, no, Tylenol will cause autism because um, she was a pregnant patient, fortunately. So we were like, okay. And then at that point, we were just like, okay, we don't know what, what are we going to do for this lady? So how do you kind of reach out to these people? Do you take them on a one-by-one basis of like kind of explain them to these things? Because that seems rather exhausting, especially if they're very into the dogma. You have to have kind of go into the, this is why, this is how we think. You have to explain them the entire epistemology of this. How do you,
1: how do you talk to these people? So, I mean, that's a, the last three chapters of my book is exactly about that for the sole reason that i started and i'll tell you what got me into it i spend a lot of time even nowadays with vaccine hesitant parents right and it was something i because when i was younger like i've been doing this now since i was 12 years or something so i was 25 when i started and i'm now 37 getting older every year Um, which is the way it's supposed to go i believe but one of the things i when i was younger and more you know of a fire brand i'd be like oh these anti-vaccine idiots whatever and now I, don't, I still don't respect, say, the, the, the people, the, the doctors and scientists who, who abuse their position. I'm, I would still reserve a lot of contempt for them. But I also look at the second class of people, the people that fall victim to that. So I've seen this in practice a few times, and I've worked on it. And um, We had a massive confidence crisis over the HPV vaccine in Ireland, and I was very involved in the efforts to reverse that. Um, and one of the things that I found talking to parents, we went down from having 87% uptake 50 percent in a year once the anti-vaccine movement got into the media in japan it went from 70 percent to one percent within a year right it was the same t- disinformation uh, in, in i think denmark 79 to 17 and i started working with a lot of other scientists and doctors talking to parents and a lot of the parents that weren't vaccinating their children weren't actually died in the wall anti-vaxxers they just heard all this scary stuff online they weren't sure what to believe and they thought maybe the easiest thing to do was to do nothing because they didn't want to feel responsible for if these claims were true, even though they didn't really think they were true. They were like, maybe it's safer to not vaccinate my daughter. And one of the most impressive people I ever met in my life, and I think ever will meet in my life, was a woman who joined us. And she wasn't a doctor or a scientist. She was a woman called Laura Brenham. She, uh, she sold beauty equipment and beauty products. But when she was 25, she was diagnosed with ter- terminal cervical cancer. And she had been a bit too old to get the vaccine. By the way, the, the vaccine, just for your listeners who don't know, it's a vaccine that could prevent cervical um, uh, cancer and anal cancer and a lot of genital cancers and save a lot of lives. Um, so she was appalled that people were opposing this. And she came out to the health service in Ireland and said, I'd like to help with this. And she became the secret weapon because she was able to turn around to these scared parents. We go to events together and I'd be talking the science and she'd be talking the human element. And she would say, you know, you're all worried about what might happen to your kids if you get this vaccine. She goes, but I am the reality of an unvaccinated girl. And she'd say, this vaccine could save your kids' lives. It could have saved mine. And she was incredible. Because she was the, the, the antidote to the poisonous fictions they put out there. And I was so privileged to be, to be close to her. She passed away at 26 um, in 2019. But her legacy is huge. Because we were the only country um, hit by this confidence crisis to reverse our numbers. We have no, now 90% uptake. And I think what's really important here is you don't get through to people just with facts and figures, and, and you need facts and figures, but you don't change someone's mind unless you change their heart, unless you can address their fears and work out where their fears came from. The other thing I'd say, the corollary to that is you have to pick your battles. Um, if I go on Facebook and there's some random person screaming all sorts of crazy stuff, I'm probably wasting my time, but if I'm at a family event and someone voices something that's incorrect, or maybe is borderline dangerous, and I could go, well, why do you think that? If I can convince them to change their mind without realizing I'm doing it, and just say, and they will go, well, I think this because I read this. I'm like, yeah, but what if the alternative? What if it was actually this? And again, conversation is better than debate. Social media has made us think that debates and screaming matches are how things should go no one ever changes anyone else's mind all you do are give people the tools to change their own mind and you damn well don't do that when you scream and call them an idiot and i used to do that when i was younger and it got me nowhere but these days a quiet conversation a chat with someone just to sow the seeds to go look I, you don't have to take me on board here but i'm giving you this is what i think might be a better explanation and just think about it and then 90% of the time, in my experience, if the person has got that far with you in the conversation, you'll bump into them again a few weeks later, and they will have shifted their position. They'll be like, yeah, I thought about it. It's Yeah, it's probably more likely to be this. That's a win. It's not a dramatic win. No one gives you a medal for it and pats you on the back. But my God, we change more minds subtly than we do with the fireworks. Even though social media will train us to think that fireworks and slapbacks and call-outs are where it's all at. No conversation and human engagement. But I will say on a final caveat, you do have to choose your battles. There are people, the narcissistic people that deliberately get off on spreading this. You will probably never change their minds. And in fact, you might just end up frustrating yourself and reinforcing them uh, in, their, in their misguidedness. So sometimes it's really just worth putting your efforts, because you, you said earlier on, is it exhausting? Yes. But if you concentrate your efforts in small amounts to reasonable people, we can stop more people getting down these rabbit holes.
0: Definitely, that is a very powerful example, and one that actually had a drastic effect. As you went from what fifty
1: percent to ninety percent, you said was vaccine yeah. uptake. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely incredible. Yeah, and the, I want to. Um, it's it's the one thing that makes her loss, you know, a bit more manageable. Sometimes is that that's what she she this is how how stubborn she was when they were making a documentary about her and um, we were talking a lot about it and she told them if i die in the making of this i want you to 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 film my body and and everyone even i was like that laura that's that's a lot and she's like people need to see it and actually she and even we all even her friends we were like that's that's a lot but you know what it was right she that was the message she was so on message the whole time she she but she's a rarity. She's so brilliant that she's, she's a rarity. That legacy will last a long time. Um, but it is a really good lesson that you need. It doesn't matter if you have a whole library of books and statistics and facts. They are important, but they are important as a backbone. You you People feel first, they, they emote first, and they react later. And the reason anti-vaccine propaganda and anti-science propaganda works is that it scares the living bejesus out of you. And then you go, oh, I, I don't want that. That sounds scary because it shut down your brain by scaring the hell out of you so it makes it a lot of work to undo it but ultimately long term and i think the reason i wrote the book in the first place long term is we have to improve our critical thinking so that these people that would manipulate us and take advantage of us and spread fear for whatever reason can't do it and i i I am optimistic we will get better at that maybe foolishly
0: but i am so I am not quite as optimistic as you. And one of the reasons is that ratings are out there. We're in the ad- attention economy. I don't know when it's going to switch, but it seems that ratings and clicks and views are everything. And as you were talking about, you are experiencing the pandemic where they don't want to hear a kind of a nuanced position of when will this end? You don't have an answer for them, so they find someone else. Um, I think that that is only going to increase. And I think specifically within the preventive health space, people are starting to realize that healthcare is not necessarily the best, especially through the pandemic, where there's so many things that we just kind of take care of people who are sick. We don't really focus on prevention. We're seeing a lot more posts about that on social media. But I think the paradigm is just starting to shift. And I think a lot of people are going to start taking advantage of that, selling bogus products all these different kinds of things, the name of preventive medicine. And obviously the sensational headlines, the ratings are the ones that are going to get the most views. You see people like Dr. Oz, who has his own TV show, um, who gets to sell all kinds of stuff, make a personal fortune from it, all that kind of stuff. How are we going to continue balancing the kind of conundrum between ratings and like that large public message
1: versus actual good science that will help people? I may be wrong on this. In fact, I may be wrong on a lot of things. But one of the things you're right, the current way that we have set up social media is is particularly toxic because it allows self-promotion of you to a huge degree, and often the least scrupulous people abuse it the most, right? Um the the fringe doctors or the fringe scientists abuse it and get more traction than say, again, the boring messages look after your health, do do clever things that you know reduce your risk exactly. in the future. Um but one of the things I think that we will learn, and this is where I'm optimistic. I think the 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 pandemic was an eye opener for us people. When I started doing research on conspiracy theories and health misinformation six or seven years ago, people laughed and said, "Oh, that's niche. That's that's talking about like you know basement dwellers who live on the internet." And, and I'm like, "No, they're your brothers. They're your cousins. They're your moms. They're your dads." And people didn't believe that, and now they do. I know every family I've spoke to has someone. In their family, they've fallen out with, or 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 has become a conspiracy theorist. And I point it, they didn't become a conspiracy theorist. They just started feeling comfortable verbalizing it. It was always there, right? But I think that increasing awareness of that has is going to lead to two or three things. Firstly, there is no way we can continue with the attitude that we have with social media, which is well, it's just um, a platform for people to whatever. Up. There will be an increasing movement to say you know what these publishers are responsible for what they put in their platform because we're starting to get evidence of how much harm it causes it's the same way cigarette companies were saying in the 1940s and 50s oh well you know it's just people's right to smoke and do what they want like yeah but you're you're we know that for example companies like facebook and instagram with same meta, the same company and twitter even manipulate the algorithm to get more sensational stuff and they even knew that they could reduce um disinformation spread but they didn't want to because it reduced engagement. Yep. So there's where responsibility comes into a factor in it. And I think it'll take a massive effort to, to, to make these companies play play fair. You might have to look at like say in you might in Japan national regulation, the European Union, I think is the best bet. The I United agree. is the second best bet. But I think the EU will eventually do something. And there's there's moves towards that. But I also think that there is an increasing awareness that we need to improve our, our health literacy our media literacy and our digital literacy because at the moment we suck collectively we are terrible and it's not a factor of education alone because very smart people as we all know fall for disinformation as well particularly because they can almost rationalize it more Uh, they're sometimes the worst people for falling for it because they're hard to convince out of it um but these are the awareness of these problems and the damage that they have done is an important wake-up call for society it won't happen overnight but, I do think that we will start going, all right, we need we need to address this. Now, you're right. I can fall into pessimism some days. There are days where I get my messages on Instagram or Twitter, or I get an email, and i I just see like, oh, here's another holistic person saying that you can cure cancer by like eating blueberries. And then you and they have twenty five thousand followers all like, and you're going, my good Lord, like, because you know what? There, there is a thing. It takes a lot more effort to put out good information or to refute re- bad information than it does to say nonsense in the first place. Because if you say something, it has to be evidence-based. You have to do the homework to say it. I, and, I feel the same. It's a standard we hold ourselves to. If and you're saying have that
0: people, just, you're not. just to add on to that. I also feel bad. Like, am I am I putting out good information out there? Because I know my words matter. If I say something that's not necessarily correct, then someone may latch on to that. It could cause harm. So everything kind of double guessing i'm making sure i know the data on this did the data change all this kind of stuff yeah. i feel like people who put out that other information do not do that at all they
1: just put out whatever comes to their mind the first thing they do and they, they do they do the trumpian approach to it just keep uh, the I, I, the technical term i think is the the, the fire hose of, of propaganda just keep putting it out there and don't care about the consistency of the internal like um, like i mean i i used, i saw that i i used to give an example in the pandemic that most of these these theories that these guys put out there and these girls put out there, they're not consistent. For example, the classic one I saw in a single post, a guy argued to me, Um, I won't mention his name, I won't give him any publicity, but a big account, bit of an idiot, I think his Twitter account was eventually deleted. But what he wrote was, essentially, if I paraphrase, that um, COVID is a hoax, but it's caused by 5G and you can cure it with ivermectin. So I said, whoa, 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 whoa covid is a hoax but it's caused by 5g and you cure it with ivermectin three things that are mutually exclusive and i suddenly realized it didn't stop him getting tens of thousands of, of, of interactions with this i'm like the problem is that if you work in science and medicine you stick to the principles of it you will never do something like that because you will say hang on these things contradict so i'm wrong here somewhere or i don't understand this enough or the evidence is conflicting, so I shouldn't make a, a categorical statement. And you're right; the cranks aren't, but aren't bound to that. But I think we will collectively get better at, at spotting this. I, I, do you know what? If we don't, we're doomed. So I don't think we actually have a choice anymore. <laughs> you, know? um, you
0: mentioned critical thinking skills, kind of the ability to go through the literature, science literacy, health literacy, all that kind of stuff, and. I know there's a bunch of different ways to do it. And I think one of the best ways is to read books such as yours. I read the entire thing. I think it should be required reading for most people because you can just read it and then you can critically appraise and just even from like a napkin math or whatever you want to call it, you can figure out if things are verifiably true or not. Is it plausible? Maybe not. Should I do some more research? But they have to read. And I think that people don't want to read. And this is why those sensationalist headlines and all those quick like bolded sentences do very well. So yeah. outside of people reading things like your book or other ways to increase their literacy, probably through reading, how are we going to tackle this problem? Because I don't see people sitting down and
1: reading books anymore. Yeah, that that is um, a grim a grim thing. And thank you for the kind words, by the way. But one of the things I would say is, par- it's a bit of a paradox. We spend more time reading on social media than we, we probably
0: that do. Is, that is very but, true.
1: But we it it's multi it's it's attention grabbing. So like I I often read even posts on instagram where it makes a medical claim in one big fancy font that's huge and people and i'm like where's the references for that did you so i think what we need to train people to do and i think we can do this is just a very simple you know series of little questions that you'd ask yourself right this acid test questions the first thing is when i hear a big scary claim i go okay where did where did you get that from what's your source right um and i check then for example if it came from the, the, you know, the JAMA or, uh, you know, a, a medical journal or, or, or CNN, that's probably more reputable than a meme you got on your racist uncle's Facebook page, right? So, you know, like, and this the second thing I go is information hygiene before we know the biggest single determinant of whether something goes viral online uh, is whether it induces outrage and fear. They are the strong negative emotions are the strongest thing. Um and i think we have to look at information as pathogenic viral disinformation is well named because it infects us and it makes us infect other people right we go would oh, you hear this and we've just become a vector well done you know uh we it might affect us but we might infect someone else with it so one of the things we should do is we should practice information hygiene and this is the concept that when we're exposed to new information we treat it like we're wearing PPE, like we're we're like okay, so where is this coming from? Where did you get this? Is it from a partisan source or, you know, is this in context? You know, I'm not going to accept it. I'm not going to reject it. I'm not going to accept it. I'm just going to leave it there. I think we've been taught that we have to have strong emotions with everything and we have to like or dislike. Sometimes the correct thing too is, I don't know. Keep about going. Question <laughs> mark. Come back to it later. Yeah. Um. And leave. And and, and just before, But the thing is, we also know that people share things on social media before they read them. I and mean, we've all done it. I mean, I, because I, I know I've, I see you smile there. Because we've all done it. Oh right? yeah. Because sometimes you're like, oh, that's a great headline, and you go, Ooh, well, I should have probably read more of the headline. I, I've, I'm trying very hard to never do that these days, but most of us have. I think seventy percent of us have at some stage. But we need to stop doing that. Where we're like, you know what? Um, and also, this is a weird and counterintuitive one. I think this one, people, do, the other ones i said probably are quite intuitive. This one mightn't be you have to start holding your own material stuff that makes affirms what you already believe you have to hold that to a higher critical standard than stuff the way you criticize someone else's stuff because it's very easy to find a a headline or a, a medical article or something that seems to echo what you already believe or already thought um but actually that's when you need to be the most critical because someone telling you what you want to hear, that's the used car salesman problem. You know, that you got to be. And, and also, it's the only way to be fair, because if you would subject someone else's belief to scrutiny, you should also go. And I find this a lot like I, I'm recently a study came out that argued that they had found data that um, children, children whose mothers had been who had got COVID when they were pregnant with them had more neurological difficulties. And a lot of people who I know and respect were using this as evidence why we need to be careful about COVID. But the paper itself was fundamentally dangerously flawed. And, and a colleague of mine, a brilliant professor of, of linguistics and, and children's developmental language um, acquisition, she wrote that there that – she and she kind of skewered it. Like she, she's uh, – Professor Dorothy Bishop, brilliant on Twitter. Uh, but she kind of went and said, look, this is – I don't know what, whether this is true or not, but the study – she basically said this is not good. The way they their criteria is wrong. But yet people I respected were using this as evidence in their canon, but usually for what they already believed. And I'm like, look, we can't just take evidence we'd like to be true. We have to hold it as critically as if a bad study came out on ivermectin, and we'd be critical about that. We also have to be critical about our own sources. We have to be critical about everything. And until it's past that trial by fire, big question mark, and we don't we, we don't give it that much oxygen, we don't share it until we have good reason to, these little things would make the media environment a lot cleaner um it won't happen overnight i i mean i'm not naive enough to think that tomorrow we're all going to be good but if we all get a bit more wiser the impact of this will be much reduced and the next time we have a pandemic and there will be another one soon um because we now explore more into areas <laughs> we haven't been to before new xenoviruses will come and join us and yeah. mess up our stuff um we do have to be prepared. We do not need a shadow plague of disinformation again. And we need to at least acquire an immunity to that, uh, to 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 borrow the analogy and stretch it to breaking point. I agree. As we're starting to close this out, I have
0: one last question for that. And this is kind of the most reductionist question of the entire uh, podcast. And that's because we try to simplify things into two minutes, because let's say someone doesn't listen to the entire thing they scroll to the end because they know we do this two minute segment. If someone asks you, how do I practice good science? If they are a layperson on the street, what do you tell them of how
1: they can practice science and stay evidence-based? So the main thing I would tell them is that it's really hard to practice good science. But the very most important thing is to realize it's okay to be wrong. It is okay to change your mind. There is no, as the evidence dictates. The only shame is in refusing to shift your position when the evidence overrules it. I think you need to be accepting of the fact that all of science is transient, that we're always learning more. Stuff that you thought you knew will become redundant. But that pattern, that journey to get there is what really matters. I think people want easy answers. It's actually the method that matters. We'll always get to the right answers if we follow the right method. That's what science is about. Um, it will occasionally give us really important answers, but the method is what really matters. And it's okay to be wrong and it's okay for other people to be wrong. And when we're wrong, we have to, you know, be willing to change our minds and willing to give other people the space to change theirs as well. I think that is very succinct. I think that'll make a great soundbite
0: that we can put out there. Um, people covers... don't have to listen to the rest of it then. Yeah, the soundbite, Exactly. Good. We don't have to listen to the rest of the 55 minutes of this. Um, thank you so much for coming on. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I think we discussed science in a pretty thorough way while giving good examples of why it's important of how it can work, how it can be applied, how we can go from 50% vaccine uptake to 90% just through a little bit of effort, through a little perseverance. Um, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. And anytime what, I can come back and do you, and want people you again. To, <laughs> I, I already recommend your book several times and I will once again do it because I think it's phenomenal. But what what do
1: you want people to see? Where do you want people to go? How do you want people to yeah, find Yeah, so if you, if you ever want to find me, I'm on Twitter at at one nine eight five. I'm on Instagram at David underscore Robert underscore Grimes um i'm my website is david and if you're in the u.s my book is called good thinking what's the subtitle i'd like to read it over here why flawed logic puts us all at risk and how critical thinking can save the world and if you're in europe the same book has a different name it's called the irrational ape while we why we fall for disinformation conspiracy theory and propaganda you see me glancing backwards here i don't know the title of my own book in different markets so The Japanese title, I'm not even going to try and read. But the point is, if you want to find me, there's plenty of places to be irritated by me. So
0: (laughs) once again, go check out the book. Dr. Grimes, absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help us spread the message of prevention, first off, rate and review this podcast. Second off, you can find our content on our social media platforms at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next one.